This, uh, this message this morning is, um, is one that I've been uh, thinking and praying through for uh, about six weeks now. And it's, uh, it's part of um, a series, a mini-series, if you like, as we move towards Easter in a couple of weeks' time. We've been working through the book of Mark, and, uh, and we are still going to be in Mark, Mark chapter 15, and this week and next week. And then the following week, which will be Easter weekend, we'll be focusing on specifically this passage. And I can honestly say to you that this passage as a speaker and as a pastor, as somebody who has been speaking a long time now, some 25 plus years, this message is, is everything. This message is the, uh, is the essence, the center of everything that we as Christians believe. We've just sung, in my place condemned, he stood. And, and this captures this statement, in my place condemned, he stood. And, and the Easter story, this Mark chapter 15, captures the whole story of the Bible. If you want to know what Christianity is about, it is not about serving the poor, even though we love to do that. Christianity is not about uh, being good and loving to our neighbors and being a good moral person, even though we want to be that. Christianity is everything about this passage. It begins and ends here. So I'm going to read the first few verses of chapter 15 and, uh, and then take a pause. Normally what I do in, in my sermons is I take it point by point or verse by verse and I apply it as I go along. I'm not doing it that way this morning because Mark in his writing provides to us a narrative that really what I'm going to do is, is let Mark and the scriptures speak for itself and pull just little truths of, I'm going to amplify, if you like, what is going on here and then at the end I have a burning question that I want to answer and the application is then. So a little bit different this morning, but we really want to just to allow uh, Mark to speak to us, the Holy Spirit to speak through Mark from chapter 15. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. 
So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. As I said, this is a a narrative of everything that the Bible points to. Everything that Mark has been doing up to chapter 8 has been talking and asking the question up to Mark chapter 8. Who is this man Jesus? And then from Mark chapter 8, halfway through Mark chapter 8 to Mark 16, the answer to this question The answer to the question, who is Jesus, is brought to us and it culminates in this passage, this chapter 15, where as we read through, we read the narrative, the story of everything that we are thinking about as we come to Easter. And my prayer as we move towards Good Friday and Easter is that we actually spend time in the next two weeks praying and meditating on the enormity and the beauty and the impact of what this passage is going to describe to us. We have a spiritual enemy who is doing an amazing job of making the most profound, uh, history-changing story called Easter has made it something so comical, uh, captured by Easter eggs and Easter bunnies, and it's such a contrast And the majority of people, when they think of Easter, they will think of chocolate or springtime or or the Easter bunny. And and as I look around the shops, and, and my heart aches because it is so far removed from the reality of what Easter is actually about. And as I'm preparing this, I I thought carefully about the impact and the. Um, the, uh, the brutality of this story. It is a brutal story, as you will see today and even more so next week as we look at the cross and the crucifixion in itself. But I do have a, a big question that I want to ask this morning. I'm going to come to that question in a minute or two. First of all, let's just jump into this narrative. Number one, we have Jesus and Pilate. You'll see that there are three acts to this story, if you like, this first part of the story. Anyway, there's three groups of people, three people that we are introduced to. And the first one is Jesus and Pilate. Verse one, it says, as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. You need to understand that the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, the, the, the governing leadership of the church at that point had no authority, nothing in their law that allowed them to kill and bring to death somebody who they disagreed with. They, they had no ability, there was no room in their teaching to kill Jesus, but they wanted to kill Jesus. And so basically they tweak the charges against Jesus and bring it and make it a political charge. They are they hate Jesus because Jesus proclaims that he is able to forgive sins and he is the son of God and they know that Pilate who is uh, Caesar's representative is not interested in any religious argument but the Sanhedrin know that perhaps that the Pilate governor will will actually uh, respond to a political charge, which is why the question comes in verse 2, are you the king of the Jews? Because 
the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the rulers of the church at that time would know that, that uh, part of Pilate's job is to make sure that the governorship, the leadership of that area right now stayed very much focused on Caesar, not on some king that the Jews have. So this is why the question comes, are you the king of the Jews? And then Jesus says in verse 2, you have said so. But not in the way that Pilate thinks. You see, in John it says, my kingdom is not of this world. Yes, I am a king, but not the kind of king that you think I am, Pilate. And as we read through, it becomes clear in in verse 3, the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? So how many charges they bring against you? Pilate is starting to realize as this interaction happens that Jesus is completely innocent. He is no threat at all to the, the, uh, the government, no threat at all to his position. And so he asks Jesus in verse 3, have you got nothing to say? In verse 5 it says, Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. You see, his silence, Jesus' silence, the Savior's silence is what intrigues me about this message. What intrigues me about this narrative because so much so that Pilate is amazed that this man would stand and listen to the accusations of the people around him and would go silent. And his silence amazed Pilate. His silence should amaze us this morning. His silence was intentional. In Isaiah 53, it is prophesied hundreds of years before, he, Jesus, was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. See, Isaiah predicted that Jesus the Savior would be silent. Jesus would know about that prophecy. He would know that his silence was required and he went quiet so much so that it amazes Pilate. What would you do in that situation? What would I do in that situation if I am surrounded by an accusatory crowd, so much so that if this accusation is listened to, it would ultimately lead to my death? Would I stand there before my accusers and go quiet? I would be screaming my indignation. I would be shouting my innocence I'd be declaring that these charges are incorrect, they're wrong, I'm innocent. But Jesus goes quiet. Why does he go out quiet? See, his silence is deafening. A few days before, I should say hours before, he's quietly in the garden with his father in Gethsemane and he's praying to God, and as you've read this story many times, I'm sure you'll, you'll see Jesus in absolute agony, so much so the stress that he is feeling, knowing what is coming before him. And next week, I want you to come back next week because there's a misunderstanding about what the cross actually not only represents, but the reality of the punishment that Jesus went through is so much more than the physical, and we'll see that next week. Jesus knows as he's looking towards uh, the cross, he knows what is going to happen and he says father if there's another I'm paraphrasing but Lord if there's another way can you let this cup 
pass before me so I don't have to drink of it. And then he says, but not my will, but yours. See, the silent father leads to the silent son. Because it must be this way. In Mark chapter 8, those words are used that, the, that Jesus must die. This was the mission. This is everything. In Ephesians chapter 1, we see God, that Paul is saying that before the foundation of the world, in him, before the foundation of the world, this plan, this gospel was set in place, the scriptures say to us. This was everything that the Bible speaks to. It's everything that Mark's message speaks to. At this moment, stood before Pilate. This is the center of the story and Jesus goes quiet because his father went quiet in the garden of Gethsemane. It required Jesus' silence because this is the way it must be. So we have the silent God. And we have Jesus in the crowd in verse 10. For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest, his Pilate, that out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? You see, Pilate is smart. He's a politician. He knows what's going on. He can see that the Sanhedrin have a plan, a plot that they are forcing through. Pilate is completely convinced that Jesus is innocent and so he presents another option to the crowd. He says, how about I release Barabbas to you? He offers the crowd a deal like a good politician would. If not this, how about this? Barabbas or Jesus, a terrorist or this innocent man, who do you choose? But you see, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests had done a great job of, of, of stirring up the crowd, so much so that they, they require Barabbas and, and shout, crucify him, crucify Jesus, crucify the innocent one. Perhaps the most chilling words in the gospel, crucify him. They insist upon it. They demand it. They order it. Crucify him. Verse 14, Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted, All the more. All the more. Crucify him. You need to understand who this crowd is. See, we have Pilate, we understand his role in the story, we understand what he is and who he is and what he represents. Then we have the crowd. You need to understand this is the same crowd who days before was singing, Hosanna, Hosanna. It's the same crowd. They were laying their cloaks on the floor, declaring the king coming into Jerusalem. It's the same crowd who now, days later, are screaming, crucify him. This is unspeakably evil. And what does Jesus do? He's silent. He stands and He listens 
and he's silent because days, uh, sorry, hours before his father was silent, that he knew that he must die. So verse 15, so Pilate, and this is a very interesting statement. So Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd. Release for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. You see, Pilate's goal is, is not justice. Pilate's goal is not to do the right thing. Pilate's goal is to be popular, to have the popularity with the crowd. See, he wants to satisfy the crowd. And so what he does is he creates this win-win situation like any decent politician would. He's a politician. He wants to satisfy the crowd. He wants to satisfy the chief priests. And in by doing so, he's also satisfying Caesar. And he turns Jesus over to be crucified. And once again, the silence is overwhelming from Jesus. See, this crowd demanding and insisting and ordering Jesus' death gives us a glimpse into the reality of us, who we are. Because our response in life, our guilt, our sin, our shame, the things that we have willfully done wrong require, in the same way this crowd insisted upon the death of Jesus, my life outside of Jesus insists on the death of Jesus because it is the only way that God's plan, that the only way that God's perfect design can be fulfilled in my life and the only way that God's perfect plan can be fulfilled is by Jesus going silent before the crowd and heading to the cross. Mark is, and we'll see this more next week, Mark is incredibly blunt and very matter-of-fact. He says, so he released them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus. He doesn't go into any detail about what that looks like with Jesus and the soldiers. This is the, the next group, if you like. We've got Pilate, we've got the crowd. Now we have number three, we have Jesus and the soldiers. See, Mark just kind of, and you'll see later on in the passage, he does the same with the crucifixion. He just says, and Jesus was crucified. Now we have, and having scourged Jesus. The reason he doesn't go into any great detail about the scourging is because he knows that his readership, that was primarily Roman, that, that they would know exactly what this scourging entailed. You and I do not. We have no frame of reference at all for what this scourging actually meant to Jesus. It was the most horrific form of punishment. Verse 16, the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. The whole battalion. They clothed him in a purple cloak, purple being representative of royalty. They mockery starts here. They twist together a crown of thorns and they put it on him. They began to salute him, hail king of the Jews. They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak 
and put his own clothes on him. So this would have happened after, according to Mark, after the scourging took place. The king of the Jews, the king of kings, the silent savior takes this beating after the scourging. See, the scourging, the, uh, the, the, the process that the prisoner would be taken through in order to get to this place is horrendous in itself. But then the mockery on top of that starts. Some of you will have seen, perhaps a few years ago, The Passion of Christ, the movie, and I would recommend you watch it. It gives you a slight insight as to the horror of the cross, but I don't actually believe we have any clue to what it was like. You see, the Romans were extremely good at their job. These were highly trained soldiers. There was a reason why the Roman Empire occupied the majority of the civilized world at that time. They would have taken Jesus and likely chained him to some kind of wooden post. And then they would take what we would call a cat of nine tails, which is essentially a piece of wood, a large handle with leather protruding out, and inside the leather would have been pieces of bone and and metal. And as they whip our silent saviors back, it would dig into his flesh. And then they would pull sideways off his back. Men would often die just from the scourging because history tells us, not the Bible, but actual Roman history, that this scourging would remove ribs. It would remove organs in itself. And we do not know how long he was in there for. But there is no restraint. The Bible actually tells us that Jesus was unrecognizable after the Romans had finished. This was human depravity on full display. Silence. Then they take him. Then they mock him. They beat him with sticks. And they spit on him. And they pull his beard out. This man now, frankly, would be a pulp. This man that we call our savior. Says in Isaiah 50, verse 6, hundreds of years before this was prophesied by Isaiah, I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. He is the only one in this chapter who is innocent. He is the only one. He receives the cruelest of punishments. You go from the lying hands of the chief priest to the prideful hands of Pilate to the condemning hands of the crowd and the violent hands of the soldiers and each scene reminds us of his innocence and each scene he is silent. See, Pilate knew he was innocent. The chief priest knew that he was innocent. The crowd knew he was innocent. The soldiers knew that he was innocent. And yet in each scene, he is silent. You see, Mark reinforces Jesus' innocence throughout the whole chapter. So here is my burning question. Why does he stay silent? Why is it 
that Jesus, if he is innocent, why does he die like this? Why is he being treated like this? What does this silence shout out to me? And how is it that our world's response to this is Easter eggs and Easter bunnies? In my place, condemned, he stood. We have just sung. If he's not being crucified for his sin, if he is not being scourged for his sin, because he is innocent, then why is he being scourged? Why is he being crucified at all? Because he's taking my place. The brutality of the way that Jesus is treated speaks to the brutality and disgusting nature of our sin. And our culture doesn't like that because our culture is all about Easter eggs and bunnies. Let's just move past the possibility that actually at the core of us there is unspeakable evil. I watched a video this week. My timing of watching the video was poor because I was up as is my norm, between five and six, I was up very early and I made the mistake, I do this every now and again and then I repent, of rather than turning to the scriptures at first, I put my phone on, bad idea. And I have a Twitter feed that I follow and, and, um, and on there was a tweet from a, a friend of mine a pastor in Vancouver, and he had retweeted a a tweet from John Piper, and John Piper had posted this video, and and maybe, I know, John, this is very close to your heart, and maybe you saw the video, but this video was a a video of a a couple, a, a, a man and a woman, I believe, who had gone undercover into the Planned Parenthood conference in California, and, and to jump ahead a little bit, this couple have actually, um, uh, uh, have charges against them now, 14 felonies for, the, for this reason, because they pretended to be uh, scientists or researchers or representatives of a company that uses human baby tissues as part of their research, purchasing it. So they went in and undercover, they had hidden cameras, they interviewed various doctors and they spent most time with a particular doctor as she described her eagerness to not allow that baby to look like a baby because it upsets people in the room if it comes out looking like a baby. Because as part of her state law, if there's any sign of life, then they are required by law to actually have the baby resuscitated. So she wants to make sure that the baby doesn't look like a baby before it comes out. And I am no word of a lie. Just think. She then talks about how she needs to hit the gym in order to make sure that she can break the bones well enough before it comes out. And she talks about it like just another day in the office. Unspeakable evil. And as I'm watching the video, there's two thoughts going through my mind. The first thought is, why are you watching this video now? And then my second thought is, God wanted me to see this video now. Because my first response 
and there's more to it. You should watch it. By the way, I then went and I said, the horror of what this lady is saying has to be in the press. So I googled her name. Not one mainstream media outlet. Not one. All of them were Christian outlets talking about it, the Catholic News, etc., etc. You know what God whispered to me? Your sin, Glenn, is as disgusting and unspeakably evil as that. I cannot stand in judgment, in self-righteous judgment. I can stand in judgment, but not self-righteous judgment. Because as I read this passage and I think about Jesus' unspeakable punishment for me, because my sin requires, because God is a just God, my heart was broken as I watched this video. And then I went on, literally, my next, after my own personal time with the Lord, I then started to carry on preparing this sermon. And it was just a reminder again that God, in love for me, allowed His Son to go through that punishment so that my sin can be forgiven. Now you go, okay, Glenn, I'm not seeing the connection here. I'm not seeing how... Jesus needing to be punished is connected to my sin. Why doesn't God just forgive him? Why, why does God need to punish anybody? God is a God of love. And, and, and why can't we just allow God to be a God of love? He doesn't need this. In fact, this whole passage speaks to a teaching called substitutionary atonement. And there was a big push a few years ago that no, penal substitutionary atonement is not God. This is this is like divine, and I quote, divine child abuse. How can a father treat his son in this way? Just forgive. But the thing is, the same Bible that speaks to a God being a loving God also speaks as loudly to God being a holy God. And you cannot have one without the other. His holiness requires justice and his justice requires to be held, hold people, hold those that sin to account. And we don't like this in our culture. We want Easter eggs and bunnies. But the reality is, if God is going to be God and enable him to be loving, perfect love, then he too also must be perfectly just And we're okay with justice as long as justice is not applied to me. In my place, condemned he stood. This ultimate sacrifice was needed and required. He's taking my place. He's taking your place. He's taking Barabbas' place on Barabbas' cross. The brutality and the shame of the cross is a mere glance in the general direction of the brutality and shame of my sin in the sight of a holy God. That's the storyline of the Bible. Pilate is amazed and confused at Jesus' silence. Why is he not defending himself? Why is he going quiet? Friends, we should be amazed too. We should be shocked at his silence. He doesn't justify himself. He doesn't protest. 
He knows the plan must be fulfilled. And all through the Gospel of Mark, we have Jesus proclaiming with great authority and who, uh, who God is. And he's proclaiming and proclaiming and talking and shouting and, and with authority until this moment when he goes silent. So why the silence? John Calvin describes it as this. He says he was, and I'm paraphrasing, he was quiet at Pilate's seat because he had become answerable for our guilt. He actually had no defense because he knew what he now was representing was guilt. In Isaiah 43 and verse 5, it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Our, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Look at these words. Our transgressions. Our iniquities brought us peace. With his wounds, we, us, me, are healed. See, we are the crowd. We bear responsibility for his death. Our sins make his death necessary because we are serving a just God. But it brings us peace. You see, our sins make his silence necessary. You see, Jesus' love, and here's why he's silent. The love of God, the love of Christ is shown by his silence. You see, he was silent then so he could be our spokesman and pray for us now. He was silent then so we can be accepted now. He was silent then so we can shout in celebration now. Because his silence literally means our salvation. So how does this practically apply to you and me this morning? Apart from leaving this place feeling shocked at the brutality or at least the start of the brutality of this whole story, this narrative of Easter and the cross, how does this apply to you and me? How is it that this is going to allow me to be able to shout with joy because it seems so achingly bad? You see, his silence shouts into the noise of our lives. It reverberates off the the walls that we have built up and causes them to shake. His silence resonates in the chaos of our minds because it brings us great peace, because it breaks through the weight of our sin and shame. See, the Bible as profoundly complicated and and intriguing and, and mysterious that this passage is as to the why It's actually really very simple. In my place, he takes my sin. He takes your sin if you believe. Then I can come to the cross and I can ask for forgiveness. And the peace of God will flood into my life. Because now I'm actually able to approach God. That's what atonement means. This at-one-ment. That which was distanced because of my sin. This sin is now removed by Jesus taking the punishment for that sin. It allows me to be connected to God. It allows you, for those of you who believe, to be connected with God. This love-filled silence allows me and you to have a relationship with God that we didn't have before. Because you cannot fix your sin. 
I cannot fix my shame. It cannot be done. See, this love-filled silence invades our insecurity. It overcomes our fears. It forgives our sin. But it also challenges us. See, the scripture talks, and we're going to come to this in a few minutes. The scripture talks about how we should gather together. And Jesus, by his example, said to his disciples that you should remember You should remember the sacrifice that my body broken for you. And we've heard a description of what that was like. My blood shed for you. And we're going to hear more about that next week. He said, remember that these emblems, the the bread and the wine, represent the death of Jesus Christ. He says, remember. And it causes us to be challenged. Because all of this, this whole passage, his silence resonating throughout speaks to his intense, unending, and eternal love for you. He took that for you. He endured that for you. Hebrews says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the shame of the cross. You and I are his joy. And the only way that we could actually have connection, relationship with God was through and by Jesus' death. There's no other way. No amount of hard work, no amount of giving to charity, no amount of serving the poor, none of that will close that gap between God and man. Only the perfect one, the innocent one dying, taking the punishment for the sin that stays in between takes that punishment and declares us innocent. We are now innocent in the sight of God. Surely his silence should shout into the noise of our lives at this time of year. And my prayer is, as we consider the cross and the crucifixion and all that it entails and what what it represents is that we don't, Approach that with a shrug, with hands in our pockets as we kind of sing the words. This should flood over us. That in my place condemned, he stood for me. Because he loves me. He loves you. We're going to sing a couple of songs in a second. And we're going to come to the, the, the communion table and... As is our norm, you come forward and grab some bread and some juice any time as we worship. But I really want it not to be our normal this morning as we consider the magnitude of the sacrifice and the enormity of his love for you. It challenges us as Christians, friends, We need to be reminded of who he is and what he has done for us. But if you don't know him this morning, if you are not a Christian, if you perhaps consider yourself a Christian, but inside you know that it's more lip service to the reality rather than the actual reality, then the Bible is very clear. You are not welcome at this table. 
In fact, it says you eat and drink condemnation upon yourself if you come and fake being a Christian. But the good news is, is in the walk from your seat to that table, you too can become one of those accepted. That his silence can reverberate through your life and transform you and change you. Because as you walk to the cross, quite literally as you come to the cross and you are faced with all the reality of what the cross means then he responds to the prayer of confession that, Lord, I am sorry. I am sorry. Forgive me for my sin. Dear God, I pray as we come to your table now,